1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transport podcast. I'm your host, Lee Klasgow, Senior Freight Transportation and Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Hamish Norton with us today. He's Starbulk's president. um, And Starbulk, for those that don't know, is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under ticker SBLK. It's got a market cap of just under $2 billion, and it's in the dry bulk business. Prior to uh, December 31st, 2012, Hamish was a managing director and global head of Maritime Group at Jeffries & Company. He's known for creating Nordic American Tanker Shipping, ticker N-A-T, uh, Nightbridge Tankers, the first two high-yield dividend shipping companies. He advised Arlington Tankers in the merger with General Maritime and has been an advisor to the U.S. shipping partners. He also advised New Mountain Capital on its investment in Intermarine In in the 1990s, he advised Frontline on the acquisition of London and overseas freighters and arranged the sale of Pacific Basin bulk shipping. Prior to joining Jeffries in 2007, Hamish ran the shipping practice at Bear Stearns since 2000. From 1984 to 1999, he worked at Lazard Frere, and from 1995 onward as a general partner and head of shipping. He is a director of... uh, Neptune Lines and Card Holdings. And uh, in addition to all of this, Hamish received an A.B. in physics from Harvard and a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Chicago. So do you go by doctor?
2: No, I don't. I, I find that it, it confuses people and uh, I, I uh, just use my name.
1: OK. All right. Uh, well thanks for joining us today. Um, can you can you can we start Because, you know people
2: might not be familiar with Starbulk. Can you just talk about uh, the company and the fleet? Sure. So S- Starbulk is in, as you said, the dry bulk business, which means we carry commodities that are generally dry and they're in bulk form. So iron ore, for example, um, coal, grain, um, uh, other ores, uh, sugar, salt, uh, basically, anything that you can pick up with a scoop and dump into a hold, and you know, not pay very careful attention to uh, to you know banging it or, or uh, dropping it. So we don't carry containers. Right. We don't carry liquids, um, and um, we carry very large quantities. Typically, our one of our dry bulk ships is filled with a single commodity. And the, the smallest ship we we have is about fifty two thousand tons of cargo, and the biggest ship is just under two hundred ten thousand tons of cargo. Um, so they're, they they carry quite large loads, and we have one hundred nineteen owned vessels, um, which is down from a recent peak of one hundred twenty eight, and we have eight. Uh, chartered-in vessels, chartered-in long-term. So that uh, that means you're leasing them from somebody else? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, And, you know, our fleet makes it sort of relatively evenly spread between the supermax or ultramax class, which is sort of 52,000 to 64,000 tons of cargo. And those ships have cranes, so they can load and unload themselves in ports that don't have such facilities. Um, We have also uh, a number of Panamax or Camsermax ships, which are about 75,000 to 85,000 tons, and they do not have cranes, so they require port infrastructure. And then we have a a number of Cape Size and Newcastle Max ships, which are 180,000 to about 210,000 tons, and uh, those ships are primarily used for iron ore, uh, some coal, uh, but certainly uh, less uh, flexible, um, and you know the the small ships basically carry anything anywhere. The medium sized ships are a little more specialized. Um, uh, you know, ca- and and most grain travels on the the Panamax and Max ships. And as I said, the, the Capes and Newcastle Maxes are are mostly devoted to iron ore, but some coal.
1: Right. And you you mentioned grain, and you know grain's been in the news. The grain trade's been in the news. Um, you know, unfortunately, because of the war in Ukraine and the impact on, um, you know, food for around around the world. Can you talk about you know how has the war in Ukraine impacted your business, the trade of commodities, and the cost of doing business?
2: yeah um you know the the war uh basically uh cut the grain output of Ukraine from about ten percent of world grain exports to basically zero mm-hmm. um it it came back a bit with the uh the agreement between Ukraine Russia and Turkey uh, but now it's back basically to zero um so you know that has caused the total flow of grain in the world to be reduced. Um, you know, offsetting that somewhat is that the ton miles that the average grain cargo travels now is, is increased, mm-hmm. uh, because there's, there's been some compensation from, uh, from South America. Uh, but generally, the distances are greater from South America uh, than they were from Ukraine to, to Ukraine's clients. And that and that's good for shipping because it's good for shipping because the more ton miles, you know, the more tons we carry, the further we carry them, the you know, the the better utilized our ships. But but net net the the the, the Ukraine war has been bad for dry bulk shipping. Uh, Although you know, for example, coal cargoes right. are up as a result. Um, you know, uh, not directly due to the grain, but due to due to the uh, the war and and people's willingness to uh, you know buy gas and uh, and coal from Russia.
1: Right, and so that's interesting because in the tanker market, it's been actually you know good for. Uh, time charter rates the the rates that people pay to, to ship crude oil uh, on, yeah.
2: on a ship um, you know yeah. because the, the trade lanes have, have changed so much well in the oil market you know I think what you find is that oil finds a way to travel um, right. in the grain market you know the Ukrainian grain is is in fact truly shut in um, so you know it's a, it's a it's a different issue right and um
1: and I guess that's one one of Ukraine's biggest dry bulk export is is ag or grain?
2: Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. Um, you know the the um, you know the 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 largest um, basically the the total amount of dry bulk that moves on the ocean is about five point four billion tons. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to give you an idea, a billion tons of coal, is one cubic kilometer more or less?
1: Okay, you're you're, you're using your physics degrees here.
2: <laughs> well, I just you know think about a cubic kilometer. It's right. a pretty it's a pretty impressive thing. That is, um, and uh, you know basically about ten percent of that is is grain. About twenty eight percent of that is iron ore. Uh, about twenty four percent of that is coal. And then 38 uh, percent are minor bulks, mm-hmm. and you know minor bulks are called minor bulks because they're just you know a small fraction of the total dry bulk uh, movements. But you know it's sugar, salt, uh, bauxite. All those bauxite is sometimes called a, a, a you know, major bulk because it's getting big, it tends to travel in cape sizes from West Africa to China. Um, uh, but uh, copper concentrates, you know. Other words, basically, uh, steel products even travel yeah. in uh, in supermax ships. You know, they 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 are not dumped in the hold. They're the only cargo that we typically load somewhat carefully.
1: Is that when the cranes
2: come into play? Uh, the cranes will come into play, and and you have to place the steel products typically on uh, wooden pallets in a very sort of careful way. To prevent damage to the the hold of the ship uh, and to the and to the steel products themselves. Right, and
1: so you know, from a commodity standpoint, are there commodities that are doing well? For the well, I guess let's take a step back. How is the dry bulk market? Because rates aren't you know very good right now. Well, right? well,
2: the, you know, a few weeks ago rates weren't very good, mm-hmm. but you know, rates are up quite a bit. Uh, you know, cape size rates are up over twenty thousand dollars a day. Uh, which is well into, uh, you know, profitability for just about everybody and and with our relatively low break even, it's quite profitable. Um, You know, it's somewhat counterintuitive, but uh, China has been recovering from, you know, the the hit that its economy took from COVID rather slowly. And... um, uh, you know, I think people have been generally surprised at the slow recovery in China. Right. But it, you know, their import volumes of dry bulk have been as strong as anybody could have hoped. You know, they're up about fourteen percent in the first half of the year over over last year, and um, you know, they're they're um, doing very well. And China's. Probably the biggest importer
1: in the world of dry bulk commodities.
2: Indeed, indeed. Uh, 40% of dry bulk cargoes that float on the ocean end mm-hmm. up in China. And that accounts for fifty percent of the ton miles because the trips tend to be longer than average right. if they end up in China.
1: A lot of iron ore from Brazil going to uh, China. Yes, that's, a, that's yeah. a long trip. Iron
2: ore from Brazil and Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's over eighty percent of the iron ore that travels by sea ends up in China. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's a, a big uh, a big consumer, but you know Brazilian. Ton miles uh, have been rising. Um, you know, uh, fuel prices are high, um, which is good for dry bulk shipping. It's somewhat counterintuitive. I can explain that. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, um, for whatever reason, um, you know, Chinese imports of iron ore and production of steel have really been quite strong, despite the weakness in the economy and they've been importing uh, you know a bunch of coal so uh, you know we're seeing the typical seasonal increase that you would expect in a normal year um and you know in fact rates right now are higher than they've been since december of 2022. okay but from like a year over year like when i don't know like the bdi
1: is not the perfect uh index to look at
2: well it, it it's it's been low right it's it's picked up. Picked up. It's picked up, it's okay. picked up quite a bit.
1: Are, are rates at a place now where it's profitable to be
2: a dry bulk carrier? Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. That's... I mean, this wasn't true a few weeks ago.
1: Okay, <laughs> it's a very volatile market, and that's like one of the interesting things yeah. for people that don't know anything about shipping. Shipping is extremely volatile. Uh, prices are pretty much available, um, and it's it's a very uh, transparent, I would say, kind of market. Yeah. Um, and very efficient market.
2: It's it's it is in in my experience, just about the most perfect market I've seen. Which is a, another way of saying that there are never any leading indicators.
1: Right. That's yeah. That's a good point. And so when you're looking at rates or looking at the quality of the rates, are some ship classes doing better than others? And if they yes. are, why is that?
2: So um, basically. Um, Cape sizes are doing better than uh, Panamax and, and Camps just to remind everybody, Cape sizes are the are the big, are the the big, big ships. ships, the hundred eighty thousand to two hundred ten thousand ton yeah. ships. They're doing the best. Uh, Panamaxes and Camps or Maxes are doing, you know. Not nearly as well, but okay. Which are slightly smaller? Yeah, like half the size, so mm-hmm. seventy-five to eighty-five thousand tons, and then the fifty-two to sixty-four thousand tons supermax and ultramax are, are doing okay, but again, you know, not quite as well as the, the panamax and and Campsermax. Um And the reason basically that the capes are doing better is. First of all, that the the cargoes that seem to be driving rates are iron ore and to some extent coal, right. which are ca- ra- commodities that tend to travel on the large ships, but also because the large ships are a more leveraged investment. Um, you know, they they carry much more cargo, and the fuel cost per ton of cargo is much lower in a cape size than it is in a smaller ship. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if uh, if there's a you know a little bit of um, you know weakness in the iron ore market, you know the capes just have no alternative, so they 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 go begging for cargo. Uh-huh. Whereas the the Camps are maxes and the supermaxes can can pick up many different cargoes.
1: And, and and most of the owners don't have the luxury of saying no thank you when rates are low because they. Have to make payments Correct. on these ships.
2: Yes, uh, I have. I have often um, uh, wondered why the union of Greek ship owners never goes on strike, but they never do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, it, we're price takers. Right. Okay. And then you know, you, you mentioned earlier,
1: you know, the impact of uh, higher fuel prices, and yeah. you know, with oil rising, obviously that's going to have an impact on bunker fuels. Can you can you talk about? A, you know, how much does bunker fuel fuel go into the cost of operating a ship? A, a let's, sure. let's, let's
2: stick stick with capes. Okay? Sure. I like I like big is better, right? Yeah. So <laughs> so uh you know, a cape size uh going full speed will burn about sixty tons of fuel a day. And what's full speed? Full speed is about fourteen, fourteen and a half knots. Um and um you know in the old days with uh, fuel very cheap and you know rates profitable you know you often see ships going full speed uh, you know i haven't seen capes going full speed since i've been in this business okay um, uh, you know and that's because that's because fuel prices are high and basically what happens is that uh, the sh- a ship burns fuel um in rough proportion to the cube of the speed of the ship. Mm-hmm. So that a little bit of speed up means the ship burns a lot more fuel. Right. A little bit of slowdown means the ship burns a lot less fuel. Everybody who owns a ship or charters a ship is trying to maximize their profit. A time charterer pays a certain amount per ship per day, mm-hmm. but he has to pay for the fuel. Because the time charter tells the ship where to go and how fast to go there,
3: mm-hmm.
2: so the the time charter his costs are basically the price of the ship per day plus the price of the fuel. Right. So he wants to minimize the sum of those. If charter rates are high and fuel is cheap, he goes fast. Right. If charter rates are low, are high. Yeah, so charter rates are low and fuel is expensive. He goes slowly to pay more for the ship
3: mm-hmm. and,
2: l- and less for the fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, uh, since everybody is maximizing their own profit, if fuel prices are high, ships will go more slowly unless charter rates go up. Right. Well... To a first approximation, fuel prices rise and charter rates don't go up. You can't carry as much cargo in the fleet as you could yesterday. Mm -hmm. That is not practical in, in most cases. To a first approximation, the demand for shipping services is not very sensitive to a change in the cost of shipping because the cost of shipping is so small compared to the value of the commodity. So, in fact, charter rates tend to go up in direct proportion to the price of fuel, which is very counterintuitive. We don't have to negotiate to get this to happen. The dynamics of the market make it happen automatically. And this is very different from container shipping, Mm -hmm. where a container line, if it has a higher fuel cost, has to negotiate with its customers to get rate increases. And of course, tanker companies—the fuel cost is also the cost of the commodity they're shipping. There's a lot of nonlinear interactions Mm -hmm. there. And Uh, then when you got, and and when
1: when a dry bulk ship is going slower, it also takes capacity out of the market, and that that helps push rates up. Correct.
2: Correct. Yes. So indeed, um, you know that stabilizes the dry bulk market quite a bit. If if. You know, if if fuel prices are, well, if charter rates are low, the fleet slows down, and that tends to take capacity out. So it's it's self-regulating to some degree. Yeah,
1: and you, and you mentioned full steam ahead is like fourteen, fourteen and a half knots, and and most ship owners or um, time charters are slow steaming right now. What what is what what are they doing now, roughly? Uh,
2: they're going about 11 knots. Okay. Um, you know, uh, and and recently they were going even slower. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, 11 knots is you know roughly 25 percent below uh, full speed. So the fuel consumption per day is you know under half mm-hmm. typically.
1: Of what it would be at full speed, and then just so like you know, our listeners can get a better understanding, and you can probably use your pull out your physics degree for this. Mm-hmm. So if if a cape size is going, um, you know, um, I don't know what what the math would be, but let's call it like uh, uh, one knot slower or two knots slower from Brazil to China. Like how many days does that add?
2: Well, okay, so it's a it's a complicated calculation <laughs> because you have to take into account there there are a lot of port days right. to load the ship and discharge the ship, but you know every knot um, roughly takes six percent out of the fleet capacity. Um, you know, so it's, it's a big deal. Okay, it's a big deal. So you know, on th- three three knots. You know, it's taken out you know eighteen twenty percent of the fleet capacity, and that's a global dry bulk fleet. Global dry bulk oh, fleet. That's super yes. interesting. Um, all right. So so you know
1: we're talking about fuel. You can't not talk about fuel, uh, especially to tie it to emissions. You know, mm-hmm. we know the industry has uh, gone through some emissions uh, uh, changes uh, with IMO, with latest IMO uh, initiatives. Uh, there are some coming in 2030, 2050. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want to get to zero emissions. Um, seems like a, a, a pretty tall hurdle uh, yes. for the industry, an expensive hurdle. Wh- what is? Could you just maybe talk about what the new regulations are? Talk about what Starbulk is doing, and maybe talk about how is that different than maybe the industry, if it is mm-hmm. different. Yeah.
2: Well, so, basically, there are, there are several new regulations that we have to deal with, and I'm sure there will be many more regulations coming. But, you know, the first regulation is uh, something that the shipping industry and the IMO call EEXI, which is uh, a uh, fuel efficiency rating that is calculated for each ship and in order to um, basically get into uh, 2023, uh, we had to pass uh, an EEXI rating. Mm-hmm. And you know the the uh, simplest way to increase your efficiency for the purposes of EEXI was something called engine power limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you, you could basically artificially uh, limit the power that your engine was able to produce um, and that reduced your top speed right but not by that much okay because the top speed if you recall is proportional to the cube root mm-hmm. of the engine power um, yeah, so so it's a, a little bit Bit of a, a, a reduction in engine power re- only results in a small reduction in top speed. Uh, and so basically getting most ships through the EXI test was not incredibly difficult. Uh, what is more difficult is something called the Carbon Intensity Indicator. Mm-hmm. And this is an actual measure of the uh, fuel burn per unit of cargo transportation work. And um, you know, that's basically tons of cargo that the ship can carry times the distance the ship is moving. And um, ships are rated A through E based upon their actual carbon emissions per unit of of transportation work. Um, And um, if you're E-rated, you have to present a plan to to get better in the next year. If you're D-rated for two years, you have to present a plan. Um, you know, financial penalties are not formal yet, right. uh, and would depend on flag state regulations. Um, and so, you know, I, I think A through E categories are at least initially mostly going to affect the prices that charterers will be willing to pay for these ships. So if you're an A, it might be more expensive and
1: you might use that ship because it lowers your emissions and meet your own ESG um, goals and targets.
2: Now the CII regulations are a little bit uh, controversial because um, if you're stuck in port, Mm -hmm. you are burning two tons a day of fuel to keep the lights on, but you're not doing any transportation work. Right, and you're it, being stuck in port is not under the ship owners or the charterer's control typically, and it can happen for you know for long periods and and nobody can do anything about it so it's uh, it, it, that's an issue that that probably should should get addressed and I think is being thought about mm-hmm. um then there's the European Union emissions trading scheme right which is going to apply to shipping as of January 1, 2024. And that is uh, basically a carbon tax. Um, uh, you know, ship owners who visit the EU um, have to basically obtain allowances for half of the carbon they emit on the way to the EU and half of the carbon they emit going on the voyage like out of the EU. And the price of these carbon allowances today is about eighty euros per ton of 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 carbon emitted, Um, and uh, but it's a market price. Mm -hmm. It can go up. It can go down. And what would that cost? uh,
1: You know, I guess a B-rated ship, if you will. Like, what would?
2: Well, you know, it depends how long the travel was to the EU and how long the travel was from the EU. But, you know, you could easily imagine, um, you know, a, a thousand tons of fuel each way, uh, which is 3,000 tons of carbon dioxide each way, mm-hmm. so 6,000 tons of CO2 emitted. Uh, you pay on half of that, so 3,000 tons times you know uh, 100 hundred hundred dollars hundred hundred dollars a ton roughly mm-hmm. so uh, you know three hundred thousand dollars lot it. of money it's 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 a lot of money it's gonna make people think mm-hmm. uh, it's gonna make people say what do I do to make my ship more efficient mm-hmm. um, what, what's Starbuck doing to, well, to make well ship so more efficient what we are doing first of all is we have uh, Adopted. Um, we we we're putting on the ship sensors to sense basically everything that is uh, relevant to fuel consumption. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, uh, electric power, uh, engine power, uh, fuel flow, uh, ship speed, um, uh, speed over ground, and speed through water. And so we've got basically real-time data that shows the performance of the ship. That goes back to the office. Mm -hmm. Um, We get precision modeling of the performance of the ship done. So we know how the ship is currently performing. We know how the ship is supposed to perform when it's fresh out of dry dock. Mm -hmm. and. you know the the largest single um, uh, impact on ship performance is hull fouling, basically algae and barnacles, increasing hull friction. So so we monitor that, but uh, when when we understand the performance of the ship as it as it is today, we can optimize the speeds and the routes for the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we we basically uh, use a weather forecast uh, that includes uh, you know wind wave spectrum you know wave direction um, and and we we optimize the speed and the route to give us the best sort of combination of fuel consumption and uh, and let's say opportunity cost right. based on the charter rate. Um, Then on um, most ships, we're adding so-called energy-saving devices, which are uh, basically ducts that are welded to the hull just in front of the propeller to give the water sort of an inverse twist. Mm -hmm. The propeller gives it a twist the other way, and the water ideally comes out straight. And so no energy is involved in making the water spin. It's uh it actually is good for about 5% fuel consumption. Oh wow. savings.
1: And and then like you know, so you're doing all the, these things that you can mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, baseball analogy like sing- singles and doubles yeah. to, to change things. But, you know, the IMO um you know, the Paris Accord, they have bold uh goals and targets. Yeah. So uh, you know, there, are you buying ships that are dual fuel? What kind of, what is the other fuel that you're looking at? What do you think the
2: fuel of the future is for shipping? Are we just going back to sales? Like, what, what is it going to be? Uh, that's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. In mm-hmm. fact, it's a lot more than sixty sixty four thousand dollars. Inflation. It, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's really hard, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know. Uh, this is preventing ship owners from ordering ships. It's certainly preventing us from ordering ships. It's pre- preventing a lot of others from ordering ships. Um, we don't know. Mm. Which is good for supply. Good for which, supply. Which is good for rates. Yes, which is good for rates. So the, the fleet is aging. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a particularly old fleet uh, because there were a lot of ships built you know, in, in 2007 yep. through 2012. But um, uh, it, it is getting older. And, uh, you know, uh, the obvious fuels are LNG, mm-hmm. methanol, and ammonia. And they all have their issues. Um, you know, LNG is a fossil fuel, um, It it seems to be less and less able to solve let's say, the political problem that a ship owner has with um, with uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's becoming less popular uh, with ship owners as the second fuel after fuel oil. Then there's methanol. Um, methanol is easy to use. It's easy to design a ship to use. Um, it doesn't require uh, immense amounts of crew training, um, but it is very difficult to make truly green methanol. Um, most of the green methanol that is uh, you know, available today and will be available in the future is essentially a biofuel. Um, you know, made typically from from you know, wood pulp and, and uh, you know sawmill uh, uh, leavings, and you know it's not as clear that that is completely renewable and green and, and free of carbon emissions right. as it as, as it would be if you got the carbon you need to make methanol from direct air capture of carbon. But direct air capture is very challenging and is not being done at scale now and, you know, it's, it's unclear when it will be done at scale. Um, so the chemical engineering around methanol suggests to us that it's likely to be more expensive than ammonia for, for quite a while, if, if not forever. And then there's ammonia, which is, is, is intended to be used as a carrier of hydrogen um you know you you make hydrogen with renewable electricity electrolyzing water into hydrogen and oxygen and you take that hydrogen and you combine it with a nitrogen from the atmosphere and you get ammonia um easy in principle to make this renewable fuel um but the problem with ammonia is it's incredibly toxic yeah and um You know, if there were an ammonia leak in the engine room, the 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 crew would be at risk of of being seriously injured or killed. Right. Uh, So you can't have a leak in the engine room. Um, You have to make sure the crew is protected. Uh, You know, it's it's going to be challenging to get acceptance of ammonia. So, but,
1: so when you when you look at these three fuels and you know you you obviously talk to your peers uh, go to a lot of conferences, does is, is methanol seem like the horse that's in the lead right at least for right now?
2: I think methanol is in the lead right now for companies that want their ships to be burning green fuel immediately. Yes, mm-hmm. because you can get methanol. Um, and um, so we hear Maersk is, you know, yes.
1: making those on the on the liner In- side.
2: Indeed, yeah. Although I I hear rumors that Maersk is now also thinking seriously about ammonia. Okay. A- and then you know the, there is the possibility of of nuclear power, mm-hmm. which I think people are taking more and more seriously simply because of the difficulty of the other alternatives. Yeah. Wow, (laughs) and uh, you know, uh, just you know, as a as a an interesting intellectual exercise, if you got electricity from a nuclear reactor on board a ship and used it to power an electric motor that drives the propeller, that's about ninety five percent efficient, right? Because electric motors are very good. Um, If you took that electricity from the reactor and you made hydrogen, which is about 60% efficient, and you use the hydrogen to make ammonia, which is about 80% efficient, and you burn the ammonia in an engine, which is about 35% efficient, you have wasted 80% of the power (laughs) coming out of that reactor. Um, So, you know, there are strong arguments in terms of efficiency, that it would be better to put that reactor on the ship. Mm-hmm. We'll see. i I suspect it's not in my lifetime, but yeah. maybe I'm maybe we'll be you know lucky, and um, the political issues will be solved
1: all right. well, so so um you know we're talking a little bit about environmental stuff. Um, you know, the weather's been pretty crazy. Panama Canal, mm-hmm. real low water levels. Uh, Seems to still be an issue. Uh, How how has that changed how Starbulk is operating uh,
2: their fleet? You know, it hasn't changed that much because basically dry bulk doesn't use the Panama Canal all that much. Okay. Um, The the major use of the Panama Canal is for grain Mm -hmm. in dry bulk, and um, you know. Basically, waiting time at the Panama Canal has been a roughly half percent effect on the on the size of the fleet. Effectively, you know, about half a percent of the fleet is tied up waiting at the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in the fourth quarter, that might go up because um, uh, soybean uh, crop. Uh, the soybean crop in the United States is likely to start to travel um, in, a, in a bigger way. And so that half percent might you know double. Right. I think uh,
1: Clarkson's um, you know they the latest estimates um, at least last time I looked was for supply to outpace demand uh, next year supply growth, outpace demand uh, next year. Um, Is that what you guys are expecting and you know is that gonna put pressure on rates or is it really the order book is so low as a percentage of fleet doesn't really matter?
2: Well okay so the the order book is now about eight percent of the fleet. What is it normally in the last 20 years? Well so in in 2007 the order book was seventy percent of the fleet. Okay. Um, And in in fact in 2007 the uh, the earliest new building you could order was at a shipyard that did not at that point exist. Mm-hmm. The shipyard had to get built and then they could build your new building that you ordered. And that was quicker than ordering at an existing shipyard that had a years-long order book. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if anyone's a
1: Bloomberg Terminal subscriber, yeah. you should you should look at rates during that time, um, <laughs> the,
2: the ridiculous peaks and the yes. ridiculous troughs uh, of of rates. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. Indeed, uh, rates rates hit about two hundred fifty thousand dollars a day for mm-hmm. Cape size. Um, but you know, so those ships that were ordered at Greenfield shipyards, uh, so-called greenfield, uh, were many of them, most of them, delivered, and they consume truly enormous amounts of fuel. Right. Um, and and luckily, Star Bulk does not own any of those ships. And and frankly, one of the things that gives us great confidence in the dry bulk market over the next decade is that. If decarbonization continues, which presumably it will, um, you know, these ships that were built at Greenfield shipyards between 2008 and 2012, they're going to be the first ships that get regulated out of the market, mm-hmm. and it's about 30 percent of the fleet. It's okay. you regulate out that sort of chunk of the market, you know, the the market should be very good for the remaining ships. For a long time, um, now uh, so eight percent of, of the market is is the order book. Um, the low, which was like a year and a half ago, was six percent, which mm-hmm. was the all time low. Um, you know, I think a more typical number is on the order of twenty percent. Okay. So, it's a really rational order book right now. It's, so, it, so it, yeah, supply outgrowing
1: demand really not going to have a huge impact on
2: rights. yeah, and 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 they're talking about a very minor, yes, uh, it's within, I think, their experimental error. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. know, it, it might go one way. it might go the other way, but it's it's pretty much the same. and and of course, it depends a lot on scrapping rates, mm-hmm. which nobody can anticipate. You know, uh, frankly, what this depends on, probably more than anything else, is what do charterers do with E-rated ships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if owning an E-rated ship is a real problem, you're going to see a bunch of scrapping. Uh, if charterers say, eh, E-rated, don't care that much, you know, maybe scrapping will be much less. Um, we'll see yeah uh, and you know the more enforcement basically of decarbonization rules the better
1: right no i, I absolutely and um you know also just uh, you know just a couple more questions here uh for me so you know we talked about the order book has higher interest rates impacted the order book has it impacted how you guys do business how much has it impacted the cost of owning a ship
2: because um, these ships are leveraged. These ships are are leveraged. Um, you know, we have um, relatively low leverage. Um, we are, you know, under under a third uh, debt to asset value, mm-hmm. um, at least net debt. Um, others are more leveraged. Uh, certainly, you know, the cost of 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 borrowing has gone way up. Um, our cost of borrowing is you know a little over one and a half uh, or 150 basis points over SOFR. Uh, that's pretty low as shipping companies go. You know I would say most shipping companies are are paying a much higher spread to SOFR, and of course SOFR is you know five ish percent instead of you know being basically zero. So, yeah, I mean, it's increased people's break even a lot. Um, And uh, also, banks are less and less willing to finance small ship owners. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so small ship owners have either been excluded from the debt market or have been forced to go to basically specialist ship lenders who are charging much higher spreads over SOFR than than banks. Um, and what what that is doing is it's making the ownership of all kinds of ships much more attractive for large companies mm-hmm. than for smaller companies, which which is a change right. from what the market looked like a few years ago. Right. And so you
1: know you you've been Involved in shipping for a long time, whether it's on Wall Street or as an operator. Um, what what has been the biggest change maybe over the last 20, 25 years in in shipping um, from, from your perspective? And, and that can be really anything, whether it's how they're financed or how they're operated, who's working on the ships, who owns the ships, uh, uh, profitability.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, it, it has become... Uh, a much more sort of corporate business mm-hmm. than it was um you know uh, 20 30 years ago for example it was very rare for a family owned shipping company mm-hmm. to have a holding company um uh, so what a typical family shipping business would do is they would have one special purpose company that owned one ship Mm -hmm. that had bearer shares. So, literally, the person who held the certificate was the owner.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) And you would finance that ship on its own with a bank that understood that the family owned this large fleet, Right, but there was no uh, corporate guarantee Mm -hmm. of the loan. Um So, okay, so bearer shares are not a thing anymore. <laughs> um, it's probably a good thing. Uh, presumably that's a good <laughs> thing. Um, and it is much more typical that the banks will get a corporate guarantee, an unsecured corporate guarantee of the loan, uh, as well as as security in the particular ship or, or ships. Um, and you know, y- you you will, Typically, have uh, a much more sophisticated organization among the larger shipping companies. Um, you know, with with many more specialists in in different areas. Um, you know, so so uh, yeah, it's, it's it's what you would expect. The the business is becoming more professionalized.
1: Yeah. All right. Great. Um. You know, I could probably talk for hours about this. Uh, I think the conversation that we've had uh, so far has has been fantastic. Um, You know, I think we're going to wrap things up here, uh, Hamish. And I I just want to thank you very much for your time. Um, Also, I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Uh, If you like the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. We've lined up a number of great guests for the podcast. Check back to hear... uh, from conversations with C-suite executives from companies like Canadian National, CSX, Werner, ArcBex, GXO, PAM Transportation, and Scorpio Tankers, just to name a few. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please hit me up on the terminal or on Twitter at Logistics Lee. Thanks again and have a great day.